Okay, so we have been, as you know, going through biblical themes for this semester. So we've been taking an idea or a theme and trying to trace it through the scriptures so that we can begin to hopefully get a better idea of how so many of what God's ideas and thoughts and desires are for himself and for his people are woven through the text. It isn't just a bunch of books smushed together that we read and say, oh, these are interesting stories, but rather there's one cohesive narrative that God is telling about himself and his relationship to his people through the scriptures. And so today we're taking the idea of creation and new creation and taking a look at that. So what we're going to do is take a kind of fast ride through the scriptures uh, from creation being the original creation that you can think of when you think of Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to new creation, which is the idea of this new heavens, new earth that we find in Revelation. So we're going to be taking this ride through Scripture, and the vehicle that we're going to ride in, we're going to call the dwelling place of God, okay? That's the car we're getting in, the dwelling place of God, and we're going to trace that from creation to new creation to kind of see what these creations are about, because they seem to be about the exact same thing. So you've got, hopefully you've got notes. If you don't have notes, they're available in the back on that music stand. I've got a little outline to show you kind of where we're gonna go. Uh, We're gonna cover five big buckets of information. The first will be creation in the garden. The second will be the season of rebellion, which literally takes place from Genesis three till essentially the end of the scriptures. And then we're gonna look at the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ and how he becomes this dwelling place of God and that redemption continues as the church becomes the dwelling place of God and then finally, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where God himself once again dwells with his people. So we're going to kind of go through those categories together one at a time. So what do I want you to see from all of this? What I hope that you'll take away, if nothing else, is the idea that God is the same. God is unchanging. He is immutable. So God's purposes, God's desires, God's will, what God is trying to accomplish, and of course always will accomplish because his desires always come to fruition, is that they don't change. His desires stay the same. What he's aiming at, he's always aiming at. It looks different as sin gets introduced and as the people relate to him differently, but his desires and purposes and will don't change. And that's what I hope that we will see as we take this little walk together or this ride together in our dwelling place of God car. Okay, so number one, Number one, creation. This is something that takes place in the garden. Uh, this is uh, this idea that we, we all know almost every single lesson this semester to some degree or another has begun in Genesis 1, as it should. Uh, all of the narrative of God starts there. And so we have this idea that God creates everything out of nothing, right? God creates from nothing. God doesn't take stuff that already exists and makes things He just makes things out of nothing. He has a pile of emptiness, and he creates out of that. That's not how we operate, right? We are wildly different. God is different than us. He is other than us. So if we want to make stuff, we have to have stuff, right? If I want to build a wooden chair, I need some wood. I have to have some wood that I will then shape and connect things together to create a chair. If I want to make a gun, then I need some metal to put it together or a 3D printer, That's a joke. Uh, 
But God creates the universe out of nothing, right? He creates the stars, the moon, the sun, and so on. And God makes all of these locations on the earth. When he creates the earth, he creates these habitats, these dwelling places for the creatures that he's going to make. So he creates the sea, the waters. He creates the sky. He creates the dry land. And then he fills those places with the fish and the birds and the animals and so on. He then wraps up his creation with this beautiful, lush garden, this beautiful place where there's lots of beautiful food to eat. There are animals, there are plants. It's a beautiful place. It is this glorious place. And he finishes up his creation with man, right? He creates man. He, he takes dirt and he breathes life into it and creates Adam, right? And he says, this is good, but it isn't good that he would be alone. And so I won't let him be alone. I'll create a helper fit for him. He puts Adam to sleep, takes one of his ribs and creates Woman, And then we have Adam and Eve, the first two people. He creates these two people in his image, right? They, they bear the image of God, but they are not like God in the same way that we might think of that. We tend to think of this idea of image as being something, okay, I'm like God. Well, you're like God in the same way that a painting of a bowl of apples is like a bowl of apples. It looks similar. There's some, you can recognize something that's connected there but you can't look at that bowl of apples from any other angles. Even if the artist was amazing, you can't eat the apples, you can't smell, you can't smell them, you can't experience them. There is a, an infinite amount of difference between God and his people because we've just been created in the image of God. But what are his purposes? What are his purposes? This is the next spot on your notes here. What are God's purposes in creation? Was God just being this benevolent, overlord who made this cool world and put some cool people in it. He was like, look what I did. Isn't that fun? Like a person, you know, having an ant farm. Look what I did. This is fun to observe. Or was there some other purpose? Well, God, of course, existed before creation. God was by himself. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly satisfied, perfectly content with himself and this love that was shared between the Trinity and as an out overflow of his love, he creates. But did he create the world for man? No. The world was created for him. God made this world for himself. His desire, as we will see, is to dwell with man, his creation, which is exactly what he does. He actively creates everything that is over the course of six working days. And on the seventh day of creation, God rests from all the work that he had done. And so this is God's purpose and desire, was to create all of this so that he might dwell with his people, that his glory might be made known by them glorifying and honoring and worshiping him and enjoying him forever. That's his purpose. And we see that clearly throughout the scriptures. I've got several evidences here for you to consider. Exodus 29, verses 43 to 46. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. He's talking about the tent of meeting. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God is saying, I desire to dwell with my people. That is my aim and my purpose. 
in creation. First Kings chapter six, verses 11 through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building, talking about the temple. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. And so God is telling Solomon, I desire to dwell with you. This temple you're building will be a place where I can dwell and I can meet with my people. But he's also saying, if you will obey me, there is this idea that sin has created this separation, that God's desires to dwell with his people, that desire is being hindered because God's people are being separated from God because of their sin. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, talking about the end, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So God, again, is just repeating this over and over. I've got four examples here. I could give you 20 more where God continually proclaims, my desire is to be with my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will dwell among them. Last one here, of course, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So, God has created everything. He's created man and woman. He's got this sanctuary, this garden, this place of dwelling with his people. And there's a few things I want us to see about the Garden of Eden that I think will help us as we make connections as we continue our little drive through the scriptures. First is that the entrance to the garden is in the east. The entrance to the garden is in the east. We know this because when sin comes and God has to reject them and remove them from the garden, he places the cherubim to do the guarding that Adam was supposed to do at the east, the entrance to the garden. He drove the man out, says Genesis 3, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was Adam's job to keep and protect and to guard the garden and the tree of life, but he failed, and so now the cherubim is doing it. The second thing I want us to see about the garden is that there was this tree of life that was being protected, supposed to be protected by Adam, ends up being protected by the cherubim, and it was this tree that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree. And he also said, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what they did. But there's this tree of life that God did not want them to partake of and they had to be removed. And that tree of life will come back. We'll see that again. And so what were God's instructions to man about this? When he places man in the garden to work and to keep it, what were these instructions? Well, first is that, to work and to keep it. Man was commanded to work and to keep the garden and he was commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So... Supposed to work and keep the garden. This means to care for and to protect. This means to cultivate. This means to bear the fruit of the land. 
And then to be fruitful and multiply is the second command. Both people and this sanctuary, meaning they're meant to create more image bearers. To be fruitful and multiply does indeed mean to procreate and create more people, more image bearers of God, be fruitful and multiply in number. But it also means to be fruitful and multiply and to grow the garden. Adam was meant to take the garden and to, to have it spread out, to make the rest of the world look like this. Be fruitful and multiply where my dwelling place is, is what God wanted. Make it look like this. So they were supposed to work and keep the garden and they were to be fruitful and multiply. So this is creation, and the dwelling place of God is in the garden with his people, which is exactly what he wanted. But then we have number two in your notes, rebellion. Rebellion is the season of sin that begins in chapter three of Genesis, where we see Adam and Eve taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating it in disobedience to God. They sin, they're expelled from the garden, and as they leave, they do not do what God asked. They do not increase God's garden. They do not spread the glory of God. Instead, they increase sin. Sin is what increases. Sin is what grows. Sin is what is multiplied. So this increases and increases. We get murder almost immediately. Things get worse and worse. And then we have a flood. God observes that the people are sinning continually and he decides to eradicate everyone and start again. But he sets his love on one family and he rescues them. This particular family, they aren't perfect. They aren't sinless. They're not worthy of dwelling with God, but God chooses them anyway. Everyone on the planet gets the justice that is due for sin, but Noah and his family get the justice or get the mercy and the grace of God. So we get this reestablishment this reestablishment of God's people and the same command, be fruitful and multiply, do what I've asked you to do. And they do not. What proliferates? Not the glory of God, not the growth of the garden, not of the dwelling place of God. What proliferates is sin. And then we get to the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Which is literally the reverse of what God intended. When we think about this story, we think about how these people came together, they built this big city, they built this tall tower, to the heavens, and we say, why did they do that? Well, they wanted to get to God. They wanted to be like God. That tends to be what we think. But if we actually read, they tell us very explicitly what their motives were. Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, they being the people who are building this city and this tower, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Why? lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so God's command is to go forth, be fruitful, be, be, be multiplicative. That's a word. You're welcome. Be fruitful and multiply. Let my glory increase. Let my garden increase. The dwelling place of God should be established and should grow. But that's not what they want. They want to get together. Let's not do what God says. Let's do the opposite of that, and let's gather together in this dense city and build this tower. Let's be self-sufficient. Let's make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. And this is what God is displeased with. Is our cities wrong? No. Is building a tall building wrong? No, because that's not the point. 
It's the heart always that God is concerned with. We tend to look at actions and we say, what did they do? They built a city, they built a tall tower, God didn't like it, therefore we shouldn't build cities or tall towers. Well, rather, what's going on is that the heart of these people is, what has God commanded? Let's not do that. That's what God is displeased with. It's the posture of heart that says, I will do what I want, not what you want. And so it's why they're gathering in the city and why they're building the tall tower that God is displeased with. And of course, he confuses their language, which does indeed force them to disperse as he commanded and intended. So God is working toward reestablishing his presence on the earth, his dwelling place with his people. And so the story continues, right? We get Abraham who receives the promise of God. I will make a great multitude of you. Abraham has a son, Isaac, who God immediately commands him to sacrifice and he obeys God. And then God rescues Isaac at the last minute. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Esau, of course, who foolishly sells his birthright to his brother and Jacob who wickedly steals the blessing from his father. And then Jacob ends up having 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this nation, this people group, this people of God grows and grows. And then because of a famine, they end up finding refuge in Egypt because of Joseph. And then they are in captivity. Over time, they become slaves in Egypt and they cry out to God and God chooses to rescue them. He comes to Moses. He says, I want you to rescue my people. Moses is like, I don't talk good. He goes, don't worry about that. And he sends him in. And Moses brings the people out of Egypt. We know the story of the plagues and so on. So the people are rescued from Egypt and into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness where we come to this next spot in your notes, which is that God has them build the tabernacle. Now, a few things about the tabernacle. There's a million things that we could talk about, but I'm going to try to keep it short. Again, the entrance to the tabernacle is from which side? The east. Like the garden. The Holy of Holies has this incredibly ornate curtain upon which is embroidered the cherubim. And the Holy of Holies is the dwelling place of God. And it is guarded by the cherubim, like the garden. In the temple, there is this golden lampstand, this menorah, which is specifically instructed to be constructed to look like a tree, to remind us of the tree of life. Then God calls out a particular people to care for and work and serve and protect this sanctuary, this dwelling place of God, the Levites. God says, you now have the job I gave to Adam. I gave this job to Adam, he didn't do it. Now you have this job, protect this place that I will dwell with my people in. And then the Holy of Holies is this, is this room, this segregated area of the temple, the most holy place. It can only be entered by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement after ritual cleansings and so on. And this, this place, this room, this is shaped like a cube. It's 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. This becomes this temporary place of dwelling for God. When God's presence comes to lead the people through the desert, he shows up as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, depending on whether it's day or night. And this pillar would rest in the Holy of Holies and would leave and lead them and they would pack up the tabernacle and follow God's presence. And where it stopped, they would stop and they would set up the tabernacle. And so God would dwell with his people in this temporary yet 
separated way. Now, this idea that God's presence was in the Holy of Holies does not mean, and we should not misunderstand, that it's somehow the only place where God's presence is. God is omnipresent. That is something that is true about him all the time. But his presence, as the people could see and experience, was in the Holy of Holies because there is this, there is this idea that God wants his people to see and understand correctly. That sin has separated us. Your wickedness, your disobedience, your unwillingness to do what I've asked you to do has separated us. I had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden. You're now separated from me by this curtain. We cannot dwell together as I desire because of your sin. And so as I said, God sets this particular group of people, the priests, starting with Aaron, to care for the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle. They're the ones that continue this work, right, that was set before Adam when he was placed in the garden to work and to keep it. So we've gone from the garden to the tabernacle, and then we go to the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. It was motivated to be constructed by King David, who was like, man, this is a sweet, sweet palace that I have. I couldn't help but notice God still has a tent. We should fix that. And so his son Solomon does indeed end up building this temple. Once it's built... In Jerusalem, it transforms the city from being a city to being something something special, the city of God. It is the place, the city where God resides. It is the place that he has chosen his presence to dwell. And so it's a more permanent replica of the tabernacle, but it's got larger dimensions. Solomon was like, yeah, now that we're building a full-size building, we can... We can bump it up, right? The Holy of Holies is now 20 by 20 by 20 instead of 10 by 10 by 10, but it's still a cube. And so we've gone from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple, and now we're going to jump ahead. I'm not going to enumerate all that takes place in the rest of the Old Testament. I think we kind of know that narrative, hopefully, this idea that God's people continue in the pattern of sin, they continue to proliferate sin, they continue to rebel, And there's this cycle of God rebuking them, their repentance being restored, and then returning to sin, rebuking, repenting, being restored over and over and over again. Until finally they're taken into captivity. They're in captivity for a long time. Then they're released. They come back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. And now they're just waiting. They're just waiting for God. And God is silent for 400 years. And so then we get Jesus Christ kicking in the door like the Kool-Aid man. He shows up as a baby, right? And he's called Emmanuel, God with us, right? Jesus is God literally coming to dwell with his people. John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he's also here to establish a new order, a new covenant by which God's people will once again be worthy of God's presence, of God being able to dwell with them. So Jesus' sinless life earns the righteousness that is required for God to dwell with his people. He is then crucified. And in his death, the work of salvation is done and the law of God is fulfilled. And so now righteousness has been earned by Christ And the payment that's required for sin is paid. And that's why we see in the crucifixion narrative that that curtain that so 
ornately embroidered with the cherubim that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of God's people is torn. It's torn in two because it's no longer needed. It's no longer necessary because Jesus has come. No longer is man separated from God by their sin with this limited access through ritual of sacrifice. At this point in the narrative, Jesus is himself, the place where God dwells. Jesus is the new temple. And Jesus is indwelt with the spirit of God throughout his ministry. And Jesus explicitly claims to be the temple in John 2, 18 through 21, where he said, where the scriptures tell us, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, thinking literally, of course, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was saying, I am now this place where God dwells. It is through me now that connection with my people can come. I am this new temple. And this takes place, Jesus' crucifixion is, and all of this narrative takes place in the city of Jerusalem, which is God's holy city. And so now the good news of the kingdom of God will spread outward from God's place, God's city, as it was meant to in the garden. What God wanted to be done is now being done. Which brings us to number four, redemption in the church. This all begins in Pentecost, this idea that the church becomes the temple of God. So the church becomes the dwelling place of God, but we have to be cautious when we talk about the church, because oftentimes our modern sensibilities, we will easily forget what the church is. The people of God are now his temple. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul's saying the people of God. Christians, the church, are the temple now. And this all starts in Pentecost, this idea of the church, people being indwelt by the Spirit and thereby being the temple themselves. Now, a side note here, it's important, like I mentioned, to be sure that we understand the difference between a church building and the people of God. The people of God are the church, and then there's a church building. We tend to think of the building being the church, and it isn't, right? That's why you'll sometimes hear people say, it's good to be in the house of God, or this is the Lord's house. This building isn't, but these people are. If we remember that the church, the people of God are the temple, the current dwelling place of God, then there is this sense in which the church being called the house of God is perfectly correct, perfectly appropriate. However, if we think incorrectly about the church being a building or a place, and then we were to say, this is the house of God, as though it's similar to the tabernacle or the temple, that would be false. It is the people of God, the actual assembled saints that are the temple. When God's people are gathered here in this building, like we are today, we are indeed the household of God. We are indeed the temple. But this building is just a building. So Peter does a really good job of speaking about this spiritual household of God. The idea that God dwells in each Christian by the power of the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, 
Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. So Peter's using this analogy of construction, building something, building a house, building a building with stones. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we look at the story of Pentecost, right, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in Pentecost, we often read this part about the tongues of fire above their heads and we say, that's weird. I don't understand that. It's okay, whatever. I believe it. I mean, God doesn't lie, so I guess it's true, but I don't understand. I don't understand why it's important. But I do understand that the Spirit comes, and so I'm cool. But if we think about this a little more, right, if we consider this more deeply, it, it's this idea that God is dwelling in his people. How else has God showed up in his presence in the past? Remember how he showed up with the, with the Israelites in the desert, with Moses leading them? How does he show up as a pillar of fire? How does he show up when he's cutting the covenant with Abraham? When he's saying to Abraham, I will make a multitude out of you. Go get these animals, cut them in half and sacrifice them. And I will pass between them. Thereby saying, whatever happens to these animals will happen to me if I break my covenant with you, Abraham. And how does he pass through as a smoking pot and a flaming torch? How does he show up to call Moses to go and rescue his people in a burning bush? God's presence is often associated with fire. And so when we see Pentecost and we see these men being indwelt by the Spirit and they have these tongues of fire above their heads, this is God saying, I am not just dwelling in one person. It is not just Jesus who is my temple. Now my people are my temple. I am dwelling in each of them. I am showing you that I, my Spirit is entering these people and they are becoming the temple. They are becoming the place where I dwell. And so why is this inclusion with God's people happening? If Jesus was the perfect temple, why do we need to become the temple with him? Why can't Jesus just be the temple and we just be his people? And that's because of our unity with Christ. It's because we are in Christ. We share in all of the blessings. We share in all of the accolades of Christ. His righteousness counts for us. His death counts for us. The spirit that dwells in him dwells in us. We are in Christ and share in all that he accomplished and all that he receives. And then number five, we get to new creation, new heavens and new earth. So God starts this process by making new creations out of his people. And we see that beginning in Pentecost, this idea that he is changing people, that not only is he changing their heart, taking their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, but he is also indwelling them with his spirit. He is also making them a part of his temple. They, he is calling them into something greater than what they were before. He's making new creations out of them. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Ephesians 2, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
And so the scriptures are making clear to us, we are new creations in Christ. God has taken something and made it different. He's altered it. He's changed us. He's made us new. And we are being built built together into this dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We together are the dwelling place of God. But even these new creations that God has begun this process with, these new people that he's made, forming them into this this living temple, are still waiting. We're waiting for the completion of this creation, this new creation that God has planned. 2 Peter 3, 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're waiting for this new creation. And so the gospel goes forth. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem. It spreads throughout the world. And these new creations, you and I, Christians, are this royal priesthood. And we have been given charge over the care for the temple. We have been given that same charge that Adam was given in the garden, that the priests were given for the tabernacle and the temple. We are to work it and to keep it. We are to be fruitful and to multiply. Caring for the temple, which is us, means that we care for one another, that we love one another. We've been placed in the garden to work and keep it, so to speak. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the temple is us. You and I, Christians, are God's temple, his dwelling place as we wait for his return, for Christ's return. So we participate in the sanctifying work of the spirit in our lives. He is shaping and molding us into the image of Christ day by day. And we are meant to participate in that, to care for the temple. We flee from temptation. We crush sin through the purifying work of repentance. So we're meant to work and keep the temple. That means caring for ourselves and caring for one another. And we're meant to be fruitful and multiply. And again, this is not just a physical fruitfulness. It's not just making babies, although we're very good at that at Parkway. But it's a spiritual fruitfulness and multiplication. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, go and do the work my Father has had for you since the beginning. You have been meant as God's people to go out That's what he wants from you. That's what his command has been since the beginning. God's purposes have not changed. His desires have not changed. Go and do the work that my father has called you to. And so the new creation ends with God dwelling once again with man on the earth in glory, which was prophesied in Isaiah 65. I've got a longer passage here, but I'm going to read it. I think it's worth reading. Scripture is always worth reading, Carl. For behold, <laughs> for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard 
in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Talking about the reversal of the curses in Genesis 3. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And this is what we're talking about. This is this new creation. This is what's coming. This is what we're anticipating and looking forward to. And, of course, it's spoken again of clearly in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And church, this is what our hope is in. Our hope is in this reality. This reality that God's purposes and plans are coming. Jesus is returning. All of the problems will be fixed. The issues that we deal with on a daily basis will be remedied. The pain we feel will be no more. We will only be in glory with God forever. forever. And so as we think about this, this final place in the scriptures, this final place in our journey today, this new Jerusalem, right, the city of God comes down from heaven in glory. And if we keep reading, we'll find that the dimensions of this city are a cube. There are 12,000 12, stadia on each side. That's large. And so here comes this cube, which should remind us of the tabernacle, the temple, should remind us of this holy place where God dwells. And why is the whole city a cube rather than like inside the temple like it's been? John tells us there will be no temple. There will be no need for a temple. There's no longer any need for mediation between God and his people because he will dwell with his people forever in glory. That's the point. That's God's purposes from the beginning. When we looked at Genesis, God wanted to create so that he might dwell with his people, that they might glorify him by worshiping him and enjoying him forever. Sin breaks that situation and separates God from his people. And then the whole rest of the scripture is God working toward reestablishing his kingdom on earth that he might dwell with his people. That has been his purpose from the beginning. It continues to be his purpose today. That is his purpose in the end. That his name might be glorified by dwelling with his people and receiving their praise and honor. So, we've gone shorter than normal. I was significantly longer and I cut too much. You're welcome. But... 
quick review. The scriptures begin with creation. They end with new creation, this new heavens and new earth. The purposes of God remain the same, that he would dwell with his people and that they would glorify him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray, and then Jared will come up and answer questions. Father, we are grateful to you that you love us, that you're for us, and that we can trust you. We're thankful that your word proclaims what is true about you, about who you are, about what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And I pray that our hearts are encouraged this morning to know that your purposes are the same, that you desire to be with your people. And Lord, we desire to be with you. We are eager for your son to return, for the truth of this new creation to come to fruition, that Jesus' name would be exalted in all the earth, that this new Jerusalem would come and that we would worship you forever in glory. And so we're thankful that you are faithful, that it is by your power and your purposes that you are accomplishing all that you set out to accomplish. And so we pray that you'll give us patience, give us perseverance, give us wisdom, help us to be faithful. Let us guard and care for this temple well. Let us love one another well. Let us be fruitful and multiply. Share this gospel of the kingdom with others that they might know the love and the joy that comes from Christ's life and death and resurrection. And so we just thank you for being our God and letting us be your people. We bless your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.